0: Care Knowledge Boost, remote consultations. Hello and happy new year to everyone. We hope you'll manage to get a little bit of rest over Christmas and new year. Um, but today we are back with you to talk about remote consultations. Um, we did do a lovely episode with Dr. Dan Bunstone right back at the start of everything, um, and so this should serve as a bit of an update, bit of a sequel, um, now that everyone's been remote consulting for the past nine to ten months. There's some really good resources out there in addition to what we've done. Um, Primary Care Pathways, um, the website, have got a lovely list of resources that can help, which includes fellow podcaster Gandhi of EGP Learning, who has a series of resources about remote learning too.
1: Yeah, thank you very much to, to Gandhi for uh, for sharing those. They've been really useful, and also for his recent episode about his favourite podcasts, which we were very happy to uh, to come top off. That was uh, yes. like winning the Oscars <laughs> of the primary care podcasting world. Um, well, that's how it made us feel. So we had a little celebration. Thank you very much for that. Um, so today the episode is with Dr. Abs, and he explains about how he got involved in. Uh, writing guidelines to help navigate remote consulting uh, right at the beginning of all this Um, and his guidelines have since been accredited by the Royal College of GPs so we asked him to talk us through some of the most important points for clinicians when using remote consults and about some common pitfalls to avoid as well um, and some advice about who and how to examine people remotely Uh, and as well as dealing with specific situations because in his guidelines he talks about assessing people in care homes or or people with visual and hearing impairments uh, and we thought that was quite useful to run through as well. Yep exactly so we hope you enjoy. So would you mind first of all introducing yourself to the listeners and explaining a little bit about how you became involved with remote consultation teaching?
2: Sure uh, my name's Adam Abs. I'm a GP four years post CCT I trained in Manchester. Um, I started remote consultations initially um, so that I could travel. Um, and then in February, March, COVID hit. And I was asked by some colleagues in in Italy who were GPs to do some remote consultation training for them because they, they had no experience of it whatsoever. And at this point, I've been doing it for nearly eight or 10 months. So I did this training for them. And then I did some more training for... Uh, some colleagues in the UK, and I realised with all the, the slides and all the information I put down in, in that teaching, I'd kind of written a handbook. So just to get something out there to a wider audience, I quickly put together a remote consultations handbook, um, and that was edition one. That was a very quick quick edition to to get out there as soon as possible to help people who were suddenly doing something they had no experience of whatsoever. And because of a career choice I'd made 10 months previously, um, I, I fortunately had some experience in that. And then addition to follow later, uh, with a bit more time and a bit more thinking put into it and referencing, and and that now has RCGP accreditation.
1: Excellent. It's lovely. We can only dream of travel now. So.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, so it's lovely to get your insights into it. So you've been sort of ahead of the game and, and kind of, yeah adapting things and i guess we're in the same boat now that we've kind of all started doing the remote consultations. so we're now recording this just at the beginning of january 2021 yes and so setting the scene for the moment we we've had that uh, learning curve of changing all our consultations to telephone or remote in other ways i in particular had a play around with video um and i still use a bit of video but it is a bit more effort to use it so um it's a bit further down my list of, of ways of consulting than it was probably a few months ago and then we'll bring patients in face to face as and when i need and then again everyone's threshold is a little bit different but if we kind of take that as a bit of a background of context of what a lot of primary care clinicians they might be going through the similar you know changing of their way of consulting what do you think in that context are probably the most important points to cover when we're talking today?
2: I'd like to cover the the, the approach that the clinician takes to remote consultations, which will partly explain why everybody has a different uh, a different threshold for telephone to video, video to, to, to face-to-face. Yeah. And the uh, along those lines, the appropriateness of remote consultations when we should not shouldn't be doing them. Some pointers around examination, uh, we can't cover the whole examination, but there's some things that aren't so obvious but which are remarkably simple that we could be doing and then some examples of some more complex situations just just to show how with a bit of imagination we can we can handle things remotely
0: wonderful so I guess if we start at the, um, at the beginning um, so in terms of initiating a remote consultation and taking the history in that sort of way rather than face-to-face what do you think are the most common pitfalls that we can try and avoid?
2: I think that many patients uh, approach the remote consultation as some doctors do as well, in that they don't take it as a, seriously as a face to face consultation. Either they think, well, it's online, so it's not real, um, just like you get keyboard warriors who, who, who don't see the person who's on the other end of the interaction, or they think it's something new, or they think it's something temporary that's going to pass when COVID passes, and therefore they just need to take care of the, the task at hand and, and not consider the longer patient-doctor relationship or the 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 chronic uh, care of the patient so i think when you've got the patient and the doctor both thinking that then the remote consultation is destined to be very limited where the where the doctor appreciates that that's not the case and that a remote consultation is a full consultation where you you have to pay attention to the patient-doctor relationship and you have to look after chronic conditions and you, you have to be as professional as in a face to face consultation. The doctor's responsibility then is to educate the patient and lead by example and make sure that the patient sees it in that way too. So that will include things like slowing the patient down. So when the patient's just rushing to the end point, well I just want this doctor. I'm just calling you on the phone to get this. Then it's the doctor sometimes explicitly to say, No, this is a real consultation. I'm here to help you and I'm here to help you completely, like I would if you were sat in front of me. So let's slow down and let's let's talk through this. And also the way that you the way that you're dressed, the way that you act, the the background. If you've got your cat walking past in the background or your dirty laundry hung up, then you're going to get the response from the patient that you'd expect, which isn't going to be very good and isn't going to be very professional. When the patient walks into your GP surgery, they see a building, they see a, a, a big sign, a big NHS, blue NHS sign. They see your name on the door. There's a receptionist who books them in. And they come and sit down in your office. And the dynamics there are that they're visiting a professional in the professional's place of work. Hmm. On a remote consultation, they're sat at home in their pyjamas. And you're sat at home, hopefully not in yours. <laughs> and uh, you, you have to do a lot more work to instill some seriousness and some uh, level of respect, mutual respect into the consultation.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Adam. Yeah,
2: It's a bit of extra work, really. Um, but if you put that work in, then you'll get much... More fruitful remote consultation,
1: much less sort of transactional medicine, and more the the depth of of actually looking after people properly.
2: Exactly, all, all the things that we're all taught at medical school and through postgraduate training as well, especially as GPs. Yeah, um, and then the two most common pitfalls. Following that, I would say are that the thinking that you can't assess anyone remotely, and the other end of that is thinking that you can assess everyone remotely yeah so you can't do everything but you can do some things um and there's there's a spectrum there and everybody will sit in their own place in the spectrum and you have to operate way, wherever you're comfortable however there are some clear red lines as to when when you shouldn't be consulting remotely these can be communication problems where the patient has problems due to due to language or due to poor sight or poor hearing that you can't overcome through other ways could be Social problems. So if you, if the patient is, if it's a child on the child protection register, you may think twice uh, about undertaking a video consultation. And certainly where there's any question of any, anything socially going on that you have concern about, especially with a child, then you bring them in. The video consultation isn't appropriate. Yeah. Then there's technical problems. Perhaps that person doesn't have a good enough internet connection or the person doesn't know how to use the telephone if you want to do a video consultation Um, or you have vulnerable patients so if you have particularly with with people trafficking that we have a lot more of these days if it's uh, especially if it's a female who's from Eastern Europe for example uh, and, and they're coming in with symptoms that could be suggestive of an STI or any kind of any kind of abuse whatsoever or just anything that triggers your sixth sense, then then these patients need to be seen. You don't know who else is in the room with a remote consultation, but but when the patient comes into your room, you know who's there exactly. And then there's patient choice. So if your patient doesn't want a remote consultation, you can't force them to have a remote consultation, in my view. But that doesn't mean that you give up trying to have remote consultations with that patient. One approach I take to to some patients when when they're not keen is I say to them, well, let's try it, And if at the end of the consultation you're not happy with the consultation, then we can bring you back in tomorrow for a face-to-face. And then you have an opportunity to to sell remote consultations to the patient. And if they're not happy, then you have to fulfil your promise in bringing them them in. But hopefully, if you do the things that we're talking about today and attend to the patient-doctor relationship and take it seriously and show them it's a real consultation, then they'll be more than happy by the end of it and you'll have converted them. Otherwise, you bring them in. And you talk to them about why they're worried about remote consultations, why they're not keen, uh, explore their fears and, the, and their concerns, and then see if you can address those. And f- finally, a, a big group of patients where you shouldn't be assessing them remotely is somebody who comes in with the same problem remotely again and again and again. So if somebody comes in with a rash and you speak to them on the phone, you give them means. and then they come in a week later and they still have the problem, and you see them on video and you give them something else. And then a week later, they call you up. You need to see them. Yeah. For me, it's a rule of two. If you haven't done anything significantly differently and you still don't know what's going on after two remote consultations, you have to bring the patient in. A third, let's say, vague consultation or best guess consultation is, is not appropriate for the patient. And it, it's something that will come back to, to haunt you in the future, I'm sure.
1: So two strikes and you're in.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah we've had that with the cancer um podcast episode that we did before and for them it was three strikes and you're in if the person's come back three times with the same problem but i like the the thinking of that in terms of remote consulting as well yeah and the two yeah two strikes and you're in
2: another thing with if you assess a patient and you think that they need to be seen face to face a a common error is the doctor says oh well i'm afraid i can't assess you with this um on video or on, on telephone you need to come in I've got an appointment for you next week and they end the consultation there. Well, is that patient safe? It's a consultation. Even if you end the consultation, even if the consultation you're doing isn't appropriate for a remote consultation, you still have to do what you can to know that the patient's safe. So consider where the face-to-face appointment that you're sending them for is. Is it a uh, an urgent care centre? Is it to you the next day? Is it to you next week? Is it A&E? And as I said, consider when it will be um, and consider how they'll get there. Yep.
0: Um, and you mentioned earlier on there about examination and, and one of the big bits in your handbook that that we found most useful was the tips about um, how to do examination when you're remote consulting. Because um, I think that's something that people feel you need to bring them in to be able to get that well-rounded view of, well, I need to look at them, I need to put hands on them, I need to actually see what's going on. And and like you said, we can't cover everything because there's a wealth of information in that handbook about examining. But what what would be your top tips do you think that you'd like to impart to the listeners today? Oof,
2: top tips. They're all, all, always, <laughs> always difficult, aren't they? Um, just some, maybe maybe not necessarily top tips, but some sample tips of, of, of what you can do on uh, remote consultations. Um, there's, there's a couple that maybe I could tell you about, which will help you help to op- open your mind as to what you can do remotely. So your neurological uh, examination, most people would say, oh, you can possibly do a neurological examination remotely. But actually, if you tell, tell the patient to pick a point on their laptop or their phone, just to the side of the camera and ask them to fixate on that point and then stand back from the phone or the, the, the computer, and ask them to put their forefinger on the nose and then put the forefinger on that point that's next to the camera. Then you're doing the finger to nose test. And you don't need to see that they've exactly touched that point. What you're looking for is is a correction in the travel of the finger. So you can assess the finger to nose test. Yeah. If you've got a patient with back pain and you want to and you're concerned about neurology or simply often what we do in medicine is we do some screening tests to make sure that we've done a reasonable job of making sure that the patient's okay to reassure ourselves so we can sleep at night. If you ask a patient with, let's say, sciatica to stand up, stand behind the chair, hold onto the chair, crouch down and then stand back up again and then go up on the tiptoes and then, if safe to do so, lift their toes up off the floor so that only the heels are touching the floor, all this if, if safe and if, if you feel the patient can do it. Um, then you've checked L4, L5, and S1. If the patient's able to do that with some symmetry, then you, you've done uh, a, a gross assessment. Now, is gross assessment enough? For the first presentation of a patient with no red flags, with sciatica, it is enough, I think. Naturally, if something else is going on, then you need to bring them in or you need to be sending them to a E. and e And things like you can with some clear instructions, you can ask the patient to do that. And again it's about being imaginative, so sit back from the from the computer or that you're using and clearly show how to assess this for dystaroccoconesa and ask the patient to do the same thing if the patient is in a room which is in which it's safe to assess it, you can do a romberg's test um there's lots that you can do to make sure the patient's safe and maybe what you're doing is making sure the patient's safe enough to try some treatment and come back next week face to face if they're not getting better yeah, I mean a lot of it is trial and error isn't it so you you think that something's going on and you try the treatment for that. And if they do get better, then you are right.
0: Yep, definitely. Any other examination bits?
2: Yeah. So for the abdomen, you can do things like, as you would do in in face-to-face, you can ask a child to to jump up and down uh, and document the child jumped up and down. If the child's got abdominal pain, they can jump up and down and then I'm reassured. Uh, And also a lot of patients have um, examination equipment at home yeah so maybe i don't know maybe 50 of patients if you ask them will have a thermometer at home or they'll have a smart watch which will tell you that the, the pulse diabetics will have glucose meters uh, asthmatics will sometimes have peak flow meters yeah if you don't ask you don't know so it just it's worth getting as much information as you can Saying to the patient, do you have a thermometer at home? And they go, oh, yes. And, and say to them, It's okay, you go and get that. I'll wait here for you. And take the time to know. Because if a year's time you're stood st- st- in the coroner's court and they say, you didn't even know this patient's temperature. And you think, I wish I'd waited that extra minute for them to go into the kitchen cupboard and get them a thermometer. Trust me, it's, it's worth it.
1: So the next bit we were going to move on to was the part of your handbook that talked about special situations. That was really useful, actually. So we picked out a couple that we wanted to talk about, if that's okay. Sure. When you're trying to assess patients remotely who are in a care home, um, what are the important factors to bear in mind?
2: Um, Well, well, most of it is is the the challenges that we face normally uh, when we see patients in a care home. But at the end of the day, as it is in in real life, the patient is your responsibility, um, and you can't let the logistical difficulties stop you from from taking responsibility and for doing a full assessment of the patient. So, with remote consultations, I would try even harder to plan ahead. And to make sure that time has been set aside with the right people. Now, the right people may need to be two people. So the decision maker, the the senior carer, and the person who knows the patient. Ideally, they're the same person, but often they're not. So if they're not, then both of them need to be there. But also be firm. You need to stand your ground because there are conflicting demands on on the time uh, for the carers. They've got 101 things to do, and you're just one of them. And and you, you need to in the the politest possible way, be the advocate of your patient's health and of your your registration uh, and say, this is a, a full assessment. It's, we're doing this for the patient's health and uh, I need some time. Uh, and if they're not free to do that then, then, then you can rearrange. Um, things that you'd like the care home to, to do would be to have done recent observations. And when you need to, uh, if you're using consultation software Ask them to take the video or the consultation software to the patient so that you can see the patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Care homes are difficult because they're the most vulnerable patients, which means that they need the most more thorough assessment, but they are also more at risk uh, of COVID-19. So that the, the number of people visiting the care home, and that includes us, should be kept to a minimum, even more so than the average population.
1: Yeah so moving on to a similar but slightly different situation um, when patients have poor hearing or vision um, how can you ensure that you're trying to take advantage of video or telephone consultations to the best of our abilities
2: sure it depends on the on the software that you have But remember uh, as we said earlier it's the patient choice is important if the patient's not comfortable using it then You need to consider how to move forward, whether that's educating them by using it once and and showing them or by bringing them in and exploring their fears and and maybe showing them an example of it when they come in to see you for for next time. I would prefer video over telephone um, because if the patient is on the telephone and somebody else is talking for them, the patient is completely left out of the consultation. Yeah. If they're if they're a, a deaf patient, they're, they're absent. You're, you're, as far as they're concerned, you're absent from the consultation. As far as they're concerned, they are. Uh, there's there's somebody in the middle with 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 no direct contact between you and the patient, and that makes me uncomfortable. I am more reassured when by using a family member where, if there's a deaf patient because the family member knows the patient. And I feel like I'm a little bit closer to the patient than if I'm using a translation service on the telephone. With the video, you can um, you can have text backup for for some patients as well, so that can also be useful.
0: Yeah, like a combined video and text situation. Exactly. Yes.
2: Oh
1: yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, just logistical thing occurred to me adam when you when you set up your consultation day because i think that's probably one of the reasons i've shied away from videos is that it's just you know their they're telephone slots all face to face and I, there's a couple of patients that i've got that i've t- talked to and i've got a repeat consultation that i've booked in and i'll say we can we can do a video next time do you have it where it's like certain slots where people know it's going to be videos or how does it work for your day-to-day practice
2: uh, they need to be triaged uh, um, for a video consultation. So triaged on the telephone and then their video or face-to-face. The, the, the downside to this is if, what happens if you do the telephone consultation and then they say, okay, you can see them on the video and then you see them on the video and then they need a face-to-face. The patient feels messed around. Uh, that's unfortunate. However, having a quick look through the list will allow you to see the patients which are obviously a video one and they can be sent direct to a video one without having a telephone call. And if it's a patient who you want to do a review on, then don't put them down as a review. Don't say, come back, book in next Tuesday. Give them a video appointment next week. So try to reduce, A, the workload in terms of the telephone consultations, but also the, the amount that the patients messed around going from one modality to another.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for that. So what would you like people to take away from, um, from our chat today? What are the main points that you want people to remember?
2: I, I think the key thing that will put us all in good stead for remote consultations going forward is is to take remote consultations seriously. You need to n- nurture the patient-doctor relationship even more so so everything is emphasised, everything, every bit of sympathy that you give with the patient, every bit of empathy, every uh, expression of sorrow for something that's happened, every re- expression of regret for something that's gone wrong, uh, every acknowledgement of a, of a patient's concern has to be tenfold for the patient to feel that, you're paying attention to them, that you're listening to them and that you're with them in the same way as a face-to-face consultation. I think there's a risk of us losing the patient-doctor relationship if we don't work extra hard to maintain it and that would be awful. And hopefully people who choose a, a GP job are, are ones who want to have a strong patient-doctor relationship and if we lose that then then we've all lost a lot of our motivation for, for coming to work each day. So let's let's really try hard to keep that.
1: I just think it's a really interesting point um, to reiterate the the emphasis is really important because I do find that making the memories from consultations over the phone or without that interaction is is different so I think that sort of sticking in patient's head and that relationship like you say it's really interesting the way we're now laying down our memories and kind of what we're learning.
2: Yeah, it's it's harder. It it takes more effort, but it's better for the patient, and it's better for us. Well, I feel better at the end of the day having a real meaningful consultation with my patients, as opposed to working in a factory and seeing patients as so another one on the on the conveyor belt. That's a really good point. I, I put some useful links. One is obviously the, the handbook. Um, and then there's the GMC remote consultations hub, um, which talks about you know I talked about the appropriateness of uh, when it is and isn't appropriate for consultation. Yeah, that's um, I, I've I've put the GMC link to that. And also there's a really useful website for remote assessments of uh, paediatrics on the healthy together website and which is um fantastic which is really really good it's got remote assessments for the clinician but it also has uh, safety netting leaflets for the patient or for the patient's parent
1: brilliant yeah those those safety netting links are amazing at the moment yeah always have been but they're 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 golden at the moment
2: yeah they give you some reassurance don't they that the patient is going to know what to do next
1: absolutely 100 percent that's brilliant! Thank you so much, Adam. That was wonderful to talk to you.
2: Pleasure. Thank you both.
1: It was lovely to to meet Adam
0: virtually today and to um, to talk through um, his his guidelines and his advice. What did you take away? Do you think, Sarah?
1: Yeah, it was really nice to go through again. Um, it was really nice to kind of hear him reiterate the importance of being professional and treating the remote consult really seriously. Um, yeah. And, and just kind of how it, how difficult it can be for your more subtle points of empathy and sympathy and or emoting, essentially. Um, that genuine human connection coming through is quite tricky uh, over the phone. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think it reminded me of, about how difficult our job is to to do that and why it has been tricky. I think a lot of us were expecting to be quite quick at doing uh, telephone consultations and actually uh, my day has not gotten any slower <laughs> from from the con- you know from that point of view so it's nice to it's it's nice to have heard him reiterate that and it just kind of makes me feel a bit more grounded yeah no I 100% agree I've, I've written down that as well but um it was just
0: really interesting to think of it in that way that it is a it, it is a professional conversation um, regardless of whether or not the patient's at home and you're at home or you're in work and it was his bit about talking about how the the patient normally comes into somewhere and, and it's like an event for them and it, and it kind of adds to not the mystique of general practice but you know the like it feels like more of an important thing to both them and to yourself um, and it's how you make that that come across in a, in a video call or a telephone call is really it's really tricky. Um, and, and I hadn't thought about it in that way before. Um, so yeah, I found that interesting. And also the fact that he was saying that perhaps, um, some clinicians have maybe thought of it and patients probably as well have thought of it as a temporary thing. Um, so people aren't really investing, um, everything in it to make their, their remote consultations the best that they possibly can be, because it's this thought that, well, COVID will eventually go and then we'll get back to normal, but it is maybe appreciating that this might be a bit of the new normal. Um, and so we might need to invest a bit more in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have found that. So if I brought somebody in for a face-to-face consultation, even though at the beginning I was quite good at kind of setting the rules about what to expect from that consultation and that it would be very quick and the purposes were for examination. So any kind of chat around it would do in another way. Yep. But, you know, so if there were conversations to be had, you'd do them separately. And then a few times I've been caught out where people have turned up with their lists and they've wanted, and it's things that you need to talk over. It's like, this is all chat and loads of it would be about their medicines. It's like, those are definitely conversations that you can have over the phone. Yeah. So it was just sort of yeah, having to reiterate that. I know that you have saved all of this, thinking that now you've got a real consultation, but that was a real consultation.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that's exact wording. Like all of the types of consultation, regardless of whether or not they're face to face, telephone, or video, they are real consultations. But yeah, no, I I I find it very interesting to think of it that way. um I'm just seeing what else I've written down. So also the bit about patient choice um so there, there might be an element of that and some people might be very comfortable and want to do video calls forever and because it's so much more convenient for them yeah. but some people it might just not be for them um, and just like we do with everything else in medicine making sure that we're we're taking the patient's choice into um into account
1: my um definite learning points that will affect my practice i think going forward as well was the lots of different advice he had about examinations and that was definitely the bit when we were looking through his book and the handbook that he'd written um both of us being like (laughs) oh so each different <laughs> you can do that <laughs> each different examination sort of going through how how can you do it remotely and so yeah it's it's really useful it's a really difficult situation at the moment to know who to bring in and who not to um but yeah some really really interesting tips about how to examine quite reasonably thoroughly Um so it's really nice to go over yeah Lovely. Yeah, so if you'd like to get in touch, you can do. You can email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can get hold of us on Twitter and our handle is at pckbpodcast
0: yep and um as we always say we have an anonymous way of getting in touch as well and that is our survey and we put the link in the episode description and it takes about a minute and you can give us feedback that way as well um, and we do love getting feedback in any of those avenues um, good or bad um so that we can make uh, the podcast as uh, as good as it possibly can be for you all um that are taking the time to listen
1: and we hope you're all keeping well
0: till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
1: This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of
0: current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check
1: out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.